welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. And this time we look at O's Manual Chapter 52, focused on cerebral protection. There is, I must admit, some repetition and crossover here, particularly with Tasty Morsels 20 and 39 respectively, which cover uh, much more to do with um, regards to TBI. But in all honesty, a little repetition is often helpful for such subjects. Um, we talk a lot about cerebral protective measures in the ICU, and hopefully this will give you a little bit of the basic physiological background that you might be able to pull out in a fellowship exam. So we'll start with a few basic factoids. So the brain apparently receives 15% of the cardiac output, though I imagine by the end of a typical ICU on-call shift, that proportion will have dropped quite significantly. And that squishy, pale blob of folds and ridges in our skulls uses a surprising amount of glucose and oxygen and is very dependent on a continuous and uninterrupted supply of glucose or ketones to allow ATP generation. It is not an organ able to tolerate an oxygen debt and it has no real capacity for anaerobic metabolism. Basically, it's a bit of a diva and seems to take the position that as it's the only organ capable of producing consciousness and self-awareness that therefore it's a little bit special. Its circulation has some redundancy built in with four separate major blood vessels, so the two verts and the two internal carotids, um, all four of those filtering into the big roundabout um, that is the circle of Willis so that allows some degree of um, kind of redundancy and backup to the vascular supply. However, once you take off the little minor roads and the branches off this circle, then the redundancy and the collaterals are somewhat lacking. As a reminder, cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure, so CPP equals MAP minus ICP. So for most normal humans from day to day, this works out at a perfusion pressure of about 60 millimetres of mercury. Auto-regulation of blood supply to the brain is very well controlled, being able to control perfusion and flow very precisely anywhere in very broad ranges of mean arterial pressures from in the 50s and way up at 160 millimetres of mercury. It does this by vasoconstricting when arterial pressure is high and vasodilating when pressure is low. And as expected, um, things like chronic conditions and hypertension will have some effect on the brain's um, response uh, at this stage. There is an intricate mechanism called flow metabolism coupling described in O that allows the brain to match supply to demand. And the mechanism for this described in O I found a little bit unclear with lots of intriguing theories, but it does remain hard to grasp how metabolic products that are being washed away in the venous side of the brain cause a very neatly matched dilation and flow being supplied on the arterial side of things. Outside of that broad pressure range of maybe 50 to 160 millimetres of mercury in terms of mean arterial pressures, outside of that range, flow becomes more linear with uh, even higher pressures leading to higher flow and lower pressures leading to less flow. In the injured brain, either say traumatically injured or medically injured, this auto-regulation becomes much more challenged and we find ourselves stepping in to augment mean arterial pressures using things like vasopressors in order to ensure a reasonable cerebral perfusion pressure. There are also systemic, and by that I mean non-local factors, that can significantly affect cerebral blood flow, most notably carbon dioxide and temperature. So CBF, or cerebral blood flow, increases 3-4% to for every millimetre of mercury increase in PaCO2. Um, for those of us who are tied to kilopascals, like myself, it's easier um, to express that perhaps as a doubling of the PaCO2 in kilopascals. Um, will double the cerebral blood flow and having the, having the CO2 will have an equivalent effect. The overall metabolic rate of the cerebral tissues is lowered 8% for every degree Celsius that the body temperature is lowered. So being able to reduce um, flow to the brain either by hyperventilating or by cooling is a nifty trick when you're getting into trouble with very high ICPs. 
However, hyperventilating is reducing flow to your brain that still needs it, um, while temperature control is reducing the actual need for the flow, and therefore clearly seems to be the most um, the more elegant mechanism of the two. As mentioned in prior posts, I think it's fairly definitive at this stage that therapeutically cooling an injured brain to subnormal temperatures does not seem to improve clinical outcomes. But it would still seem prudent to take the traumatic brain injury patient with a temperature of 39 down to a more normal range. Um, equally saying that hyperventilating to a PaCO2 of 3, kilopas- 3 kilopascals might buy you a drop in the ICP um, while you're in the lift on the way to theatre to get an EVD or a craniotomy, but it's not something you want to be doing as a definitive strategy. Osmolality is another manipulable um, physiological variable that we can think- tinker with. Um, o states that a 3 milliosmol drop in osmolality can lead to a 7% increase in overall cerebral volume as fluid shifts into the brain. Um, so now that overnight sodium drop in a TBI patient from 135 to 130 all of a sudden seems a little bit more significant. The most basic implications of the osmolality of this is to avoid hypotonic fluids, which is something that we all kind of do. We don't give um, the, the CSLs or the, the Hartman fluids in the injured brain. We t- tend to stick to saline. That's well supported at this stage. And that's the very basics of things. Um, at the more advanced end of things, it might be worth um, manipulating the serum sodium somewhere north of 150 in the hope of shriveling the brain up like a prune so that it fits within the cranium instead of herniating out the foramen magnum. As a little bit of a bonus, I've been working um, my way through very slowly Thomas Woodcock's highly recommended fluid physiology textbook. So the learning point for me is for this has largely been the revised starting mechanism and I mean, it's best described elsewhere online. But there is a nice chapter on the central nervous system. He points out that recent studies suggest that there is indeed a form of lymphatic system in the brain. Previously, it was thought to be non-existent. Um, and that lymphatic system probably helps with CSF recirculation beyond the traditional understanding of CSF reabsorption through arachnoid granulations. Um, he describes three forms of cerebral edema evident um, that are kind of relevant. Firstly, vasogenic edema, which is mainly due to disruption of the blood-brain barrier. Two, cytotoxic edema due to plasmohypoosmolality, mostly thought to be related to failure of various ion pumps at a cellular level. And thirdly, interstitial edema due to CSF circulation issues. He also makes quite a nice and interesting point about mannitol. So we always kind of claim mannitol works by osmotic reabsorption, something he says will not normally occur across an intact blood-brain barrier. But if the endothelium in the glycocalyx is damaged, it's only then that mannitol will become effective by the mechanism of osmotic reabsorption. Um, It's of no real clinical import because we're still going to use it, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, reading here was based largely on O's Manual, Chapter 52, and then the Fluid Physiology textbook by Thomas Woodcock is linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening.